Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Pastor Bailey and Mary Lee are in Mexico. And I don't know if you knew they were going to Mexico, but they are there uh, writing. And um, they do this once in a while. I think it's been a, quite a while since they did this. When they go to Mexico, they really do write. If I went to Mexico, I wouldn't write. But they actually work very hard while they're there. I did speak to Tim yesterday, and things are going well for them. Uh, so pray for them that their writing work will be productive. I know they've got some specific amount of material done, and that's good. It's a good report. So do pray for them, and as they return this week, uh, be in prayer for their uh, safe travels. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Second Peter chapter 1, and uh, will also be up on the screen, I think, behind me, verses 1 through 15. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here in this first chapter, the apostle is sending a second letter with the goal of, again, stirring them up by way of reminder. If you look in 
uh, chapter t- 3 of Second Peter, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy apostles and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I'm sorry, the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord spoken by your apostles. Uh, Peter is intent that they not forget. Peter is intent that they not forget. What does he want them to remember? Well, if I could paraphrase Peter's beginning of this chapter and really what he's saying, it's, it's kind of like Peter wants them to remember that Christ has set you free. Now what are you going to do? Christ has set you free. Now what are you going to do? There's something you're supposed to do. Are you going to do it or not going to do it? And so he begins with their being set free. He says, to those who have received a faith of of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God. They received a faith of the same kind. Romans 10 speaks of the righteousness based on faith. In verse 8 it says, what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved." A faith of the same kind. But today, we don't live in a time where we want to be that exclusive. Faith doesn't come in flavors, like Brewster's ice cream. Is Brewster still open? It's been a while since I've been there. Faith doesn't come in flavors like Brewster's ice cream. Faith is of a kind. And the apostle says, you have the faith that's of the same kind. It is the faith revealed in the scriptures. But today we don't, we don't think this. I mean, we really do think that faith comes in flavors. That's your favor of, flavor of faith, and this is my flavor of faith. And I'm a Christian, and, and my flavor says that all religions are equally efficacious in reconciling people to God. That's my flavor of faith. Or I'm a Christian and I'm reconciled to God because I'm better than that guy over there. And that's the flavor of of my faith. I've gotten reconciled to God through my merit. Or I'm a Christian and Jesus and me are best buds. We're best buds. And what do you think about Jesus and me being best buds? Well... I suppose there's some construct where that could be said, and it might be okay at some point. I don't know. But it seems to, it seems not to smack much of the distinction between who Jesus is and who we are, that he is the Lord and Savior of our lives, right? I'm a Christian, and my flavor is, you 
really need to know how to properly contextualize the Bible to our current situation. If you could contextualize the Bible correctly, you'd have my flavor of faith. Or another one would be, I'm a Christian, and you really, you really know, need to know how to de- demythize, demythify the Bible. You know, it's, it's not the, the miracles. You need to be able to figure out how to skip over those parts. And that's not what Peter is propose, proposing at all. He says, you have a faith of the same kind as ours. It's the only one effectual flavor. There's only one. And it's the reason why doctrine is so important. Well, Peter had faith in Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus Christ that he had faith in? For the last hundred years or so, there have been many preachers who have proposed that doctrine is divisive and therefore it should be discarded. Well, of course, doctrine is divisive. Truth is divisive. You either believe it or you don't believe it. And if you don't believe it, guess what? You're not friends with those who do. There's a division that happens, okay? And so many men have believed that doctrine shouldn't exist because doctrine is divisive. And so they have proposed things like, you guys remember uh, seeing on church... uh, uh, church signs, they'll put up lettering and put up little phrases and things. My son and I used to share them back and forth. He got me a calendar once that had 365 of them. Stuff like, uh, this church is prayer conditioned. You know, those kinds of, you know, a, seven days without prayer makes one week. W-E-A-K, right? And so, they're lame, Right? But I used to see them that would, that would put up uh, things like uh, no creed but Christ. Have you ever seen one that says no creed but Christ? And what they're trying to propose is that we don't get into doctrine. It's only the Bible for us. We don't get into doctrine. No creed but Christ. The problem is, the first question you're going to a- ask them is what? What Christ are you talking about? Are you talking about the Muslim Christ because they believe in Jesus, that he was here? Are you talking about the Mormon Christ? They believe Jesus was here. Their Christ is a lot like the Muslim Christ. Are you talking about the the oneness Pentecostal Christ? That's a modal Christ, that he's not a part of the Trinity. He's just in, in mode. At this particular time, he was in the body. Which Christ are you talking about? How about the feminist Christ? The Christ that, you know, I believe in doesn't, you know, he was, he was above all, da 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 How do you know what kind of faith you have unless there's doctrine? And how do you have doctrine if you don't have the application of knowledge? And so true faith is of great importance to Peter. And so he wants them to have grace and peace multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So the word knowledge in the New American Standard translation is used 50 times, but eight of the 50 times it's used are here in this little three-chapter epistle from Peter. 
So Peter is concerned about teaching them that they have to have the right stuff in their minds. They have to know the truth. And when he talks about the truth, half or more of the times as he's talking about the truth in the epistle, he's talking specifically about truth concerning God. So he's, he, he uses a special or a, tip, uh, a certain kind of Greek word for describing it. It's, it's called epinosis, which is like toward the knowledge of God, toward the knowledge of Jesus, right? Discerning God, discerning Christ is what he wants them to understand. Is this is extremely important in their lives. Peter knows that they need knowledge of him. And the Holy Spirit tells us that the very entrance into our relationship with Jesus Christ requires that we have knowledge of God, that we have certain knowledge. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Somebody has to tell you something. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as is written, how, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the Bible, the Holy Spirit specifically says, we start in this, in this whole process of knowing God by being preached to, by being told certain knowledge about Jesus Christ. And that we have to hear that. If we can't hear that, we can't know Jesus Christ. How can they hear? How can they believe if they don't hear? They can't. Right? And so Peter says we make further application to knowledge by understanding more and more of the character of God. So many verses in the Scripture have to do with knowledge and its ability to deliver us, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 11. Romans talks about the curse on those who deny the knowledge of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. It's, it's in us, it's around us. The truth about God's existence is there, and there are those who would suppress that knowledge and try to put a lid on it. They don't want to know. And that's, uh, there's a curse on them. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some of you have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's writing, he's not writing to, the, to Corinth about people who are at McDonald's during the Sunday morning service. He's writing to Corinth about people who are sitting here in the chairs, and he's saying, shame on you. Some of you have no knowledge of God. You just don't have any knowledge of God. Yikes. The knowledge itself is not mystical, magical, transcendental. It's, it's preceptive. It's hearable. It's speakable. It's readable. It's writable. Writable? It's preceptive. It is miraculous, not simply because it includes 
the accounts of miracles. It does include, include those accounts, but it's also miraculous because it, it is dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to understand and to accept it. Our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, spiritually to discern and say, yes, true, I believe. And so when we sing the song, Unseal My Eyes, many of you know, to know the Christ of God, the everlasting Son, to understand what he on earth for guilty man has done, this is the first and last of all that's true and wise, the circle that contains all light beneath, above the skies, all the truth, right? And then it it says, unseal my eyes, unveil my heart, reveal this Christ to me. What we're not singing in that song is our desire to to have a vision that would show us Jesus as what he looked like when he walked on earth. Oh, that's how tall he was. Oh, that's what color his hair was. It's not talking about that. It's talking about our ability to, to read and to hear what God has said and to believe it and see it and understand it, to hear it and and having ears to actually hear. I can read something that God has said. I can declare something that God has said to two people. And one of them will hear and say, yes. And one of them will hear and it just is like nothing God said to them. And that's what it means to have the miracle of God's work in our hearing. When we hear truth, when knowledge is given to us about God. Peter desires that, his, that these people and that we would be of the godly sort producing the fruit that the godly sort produce. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That we would be godly. Partake in the divine nature. That we would characterize God. But that we would escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, when we think of lust today, the only thing we think of, because we live in a world that's, that's obsessed by sex. So when we think of lust, all we can think of is sex. But this use of the word lust is not speaking about sex. It is included in the category. But when it's talking about lust here, it's, it's the instance of longing for anything that is forbidden. It really is talking about what the Bible calls worldliness or being fleshly. It's everything that we would long for that God forbids. And so if you think about the world, you just think about the Ten Commandments and you think about the world and you think, Does the world want to embrace the Ten Commandments or does the world want to reject the Ten Commandments? And the world wants to reject the Ten Commandments because the world is is under the control of incredible lust. Lust for anything that's forbidden. And this is the world we live in. And 
Peter would have those people free from that control, set free from the corruption of it. Corruption is, is just rot, rot. And so um, if you grow plants and vegetables, there is something that's used to describe various diseases in, in plants that uh, cause there to be dark spots and, and decay on the leaves and on the stems and on the fruits of the plants, and it's called black rot. And if you think about the corruption of this world through lust, you can just put a big label over it and just call it rot. Because that is what it produces. That is its outcome. Just rot. Galatians 6 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Rot. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So if you are not sowing to the flesh, if you are not uh, following with the world, if you're not being worldly, if you're not being corrupted by lust, but you are actually sowing to the Spirit, you are actually doing what he's about to describe for them in terms of practices in their lives, then you will produce fruit if you just keep, keep at it, keep at it, you'll produce fruit. Do you ever grow anything that produced something? You know, you put the seeds in the ground and you look out there the next day and where's the fruit? Where's it at? You have to be patient. And over time, sure enough, if you've ever grown anything, pretty soon you've got a, a plant and then pretty soon you've got some flowers and then pretty soon you see the, the growing fruit on the plant. In due time, you'll reap a harvest. But he says, you actually have to sow to the Spirit. You actually have to give yourself to activity that will uh, result in that production of fruit. You don't take rot and plant it in the ground and think that you're going to get a nice crop of tomatoes. It ain't going to work. And so he says, this is what you have to do, and he moves on to practical, practical uh, instruction. He says, for this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So he starts off by saying, applying all diligence, and you know, that's what we, we uh, use that phrase all the time. Oftentimes, when Alex is talking to his children, he will say to them, Now, Jubilee, apply all diligence. It's not a common phrase we use, right? So what does it mean? What does it mean, apply all diligence? Well, it's a good phrase. If we had an idiom for it, the idiom probably today would be, Get down to business. Get down to business. Stop goofing off, get down to business. And Peter's saying to them, get down to business. And, and to your faith, add this. And so God has given you the power to live and grow in godliness. Get down to business. Add moral excellence to your faith. Moral excellence is, excellence is a little bit difficult for us. Uh, sometimes it's, it's uh, 
uh, uh, interpreted virtue. It's literally something like manliness. But what it means, uh, what it means in this case is not macho. What it means in this case is that aspect of manliness that has to do with courage. So you have faith, add courage to your faith. And then he says, and so to your courage or to your moral excellence, add knowledge. Well, knowledge in this case isn't specifically knowledge about God, it's more broad and general. Because the Christian isn't afraid of knowledge, because God is the creator. He's not afraid of knowledge. He can add all kinds of knowledge to, to his life, and it will help him in his work to become a godly, useful, fruitful man. And so he'll add knowledge about spiders and tomatoes and whatever it takes, right? Knowledge. Certainly knowledge of God, certainly knowledge of his word. And to your knowledge, add self-control, self-dominion. To self-control, add perseverance, which is patient continuance. You just keep going. Patient continuance. And to perseverance, add godliness, which is piety or holiness. And to godliness, add brotherly kindness, which you'll be familiar with the word for this. It's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So add, brother, add brotherly love to your godliness. And then to brotherly love, add love, which is one place where there's this distinction made between Philadelphia and what the word you've heard of if you've been in church for more than 10 years is agape, which is, which is a different type of love, which basically is, I describe it as the love that happens in your small group, you know, because in your small group, it's almost like you have a, um, a feast of love. It's a little bit more than just your fraternity with the, the group. But it's more of a feast of love. And it doesn't mean it doesn't have any kind of negative times in it. It does. But generally speaking, it's a time when you get together with people that you love and you miss them. And they're, they're people that you're connected to and that you have affection for. And you have affection that should have action attached to it. Even action that's benevolent. Right? Where you'll spend your own self to help them. And so it says, he says, if these qualities are in you, so he's listed all these off, he says, if these qualities are in you, well, they, they're optional, of course, just as long as you're able to explain the meaning of the Reformed acrostic, acrostic tulip. So long as you can explain the meaning of the Reformed acrostic tulip, these things are optional. But that's the most important thing. If you got tulip right, you got everything right. That's not what the text says. The text says the doctrine exists, truth exists, knowledge exists to propel us to action. These qualities should be yours and increasing. They will make you neither useless nor unfruitful. But if you don't have them, you're blind and short-sighted. You've forgotten your purification from your former sins. Be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing you. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. I 
As I read this list, I think reformed people don't care about this stuff. That's what I think. What we care about are cigars and crafted beers, liberty. That's what we'll call it. Don't, don't mess with my liberty. Don't tread on me. I'm reformed. And it's, it's just so convenient for us to avoid what God has said we should be doing with the truth that he gives us. <laughs> it's supposed to make us different. And not different because we can drink a crafted beer. That's not what it's for. I wonder if these Jewish Christians were tired of Peter's repetitious nagging. When is Peter going to stop telling us to remember our sins? I want to forget my sins. We don't like to be reminded of these things. We don't like to do this, add to your faith this, add to your this, this. We don't like this exercise. And we don't, we don't like it because of the place that it puts us in. So whenever we're made to think about our courage... What are we immediately faced with? Our cowardice and our failure. And whenever we're made to think about knowledge, we think to ourselves, well, you know, ignorance is bliss. And really, you think, I don't think ignorance is bliss. And I'm telling you, you're tempted to think ignorance is bliss. And when preachers are preaching to you, and when preachers are preaching to me, I am much rather, I would much rather they would just avoid those subjects that make me feel uncomfortable. And we don't like to be reminded of these things, and we don't like to ponder them. And when we're made to think about self-control, we remember our excesses everywhere. And when we're made to think about perseverance, we dream about taking a vacation. And when we're made to think about godliness, our lusts twist and scream inside us in protest. Because we're faced with the character of God and we fall short. And when we're made to think about brotherly kindness, we remember that our brothers are our debtors. Hey, you don't know what he did to me. Do you know what she said two and a half years ago? And when we're made to think about love, we remember that we are very important and very busy. And so all the time we're faced with these things, we have, we have this negative, negative fight that goes on inside us. You think you're any different than your children when you tell them to wash their hands? <laughs> I'm not. There's a fight. They know they want clean hands and they know they don't want to stop whatever they got to do to get them. That's their will. And here we are, people. Guilty. The good thing, though, is that Peter talks about the fact that we have these qualities and that they're coming, they should be coming in increasing measure, which means that there is a fight in there. There's, there's ground to be conquered. And so there's, not, there's ground that's not conquered. And this is why we have a love-hate relationship with preaching that touches the conscience. Because preaching that touches the conscience makes us look at these things 
and consider our sin. Peter says that he he who does not have these qualities and who is not exercising them toward their increase has forgotten the gracious cleansing God gave him from his sins. And that's scary. And if you go on to the next chapter, he goes on to talk about preachers who would mislead people to think that that all of those, uh, that the opposites, that the sins connected to all of those things are actually something you should embrace. And that their consciences are so seared. And when he describes them, he says it would have been better for them that they never known about the righteousness than to having known it to turn away from it and from that holy commandment and turn back to sin and lust. It would have been better if they'd never known. He says, people who do this, it's, it's true of them as is true of the proverb, the dog returns to its vomit, and once the pig is washed, the pig will go right back to the mud. And it's not a benediction he's giving them. And so Peter comes back and he says, okay, let's go back to diligence. Get down to business. Verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, also, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to recall these things to mind. Assurance. He says, I want you to have assurance. It's not assurance because you earn it. It's not assurance because you can show me a graph where you've ticked off all these things you've added and therefore God receives you. It's assurance because when you're actually doing these things, it actually shows evidence that God is in you and working and that he has done and is doing a work in you. And you can have assurance of your entrance into his kingdom. But he said, I'm not going to stop telling you. I'm not going to stop reminding you. I'm not going to stop reminding you until I die. And after I'm dead, I hope my voice is in your head so much that you couldn't stop reminding yourself of it. Because I know you need that reminder. And that's true of us, isn't it? We have to be reminded and reminded and reminded because if we're not reminded, if we don't spur one another on to repentance and faith, if we're not reminded, we'll forget that we've been cleansed from our past sins. And we'll start to return to vomit and rot. And church, no. God would have us be alive and fruitful. And he would have us bring glory to him. And he would have us to have that assurance of his work in our lives. And so we must, must, must continue. Begin, continue, 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 continue to see this work done in us. And it's not work that's... uh, (laughs) It's not work that's simply in your head that you can memorize. It's, It's work that is 
applied to your life that you do. It works out in you. You can't have brotherly kindness simply in your head. You can't have agape love simply in your head. You can't have self-control simply in your head. I have self-control. I'll take three pints of ice cream. That's a weird kind of name it claim it, isn't it? Let's pray.